The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to 1 Chronicles 16. That's right, you heard it, 1 Chronicles 16. The Chronicles are in your Old Testament. Uh, Anybody read Chronicles lately? It's one of those maybe uh, dusty books that gets forgotten back there, the history of uh, King David, of uh, the, God's people in the Old Testament. We began our series last week on authentic worship at the end in Revelation 5 with a glimpse into heaven to show us why we worship. And so today we're gonna continue that series all month. As you heard in the announcements, we are looking at God's word as to, uh, to teach us what is authentic worship. How do we genuinely worship Christ? What marks our worship? Who do we worship? And that's really the question that we answer today. Who is the object of our worship? Today we go back, last week we looked ahead, but today we go back into the days of King David and learn from a man who knew how to worship, right? This man knew how to worship. As you read the story of his life and you read the words that he penned, they teach us how to worship. You probably are familiar with this, maybe not, but King David penned many of the Psalms that are those inspired expressions of theology and emotion. The Psalms teach us how to worship in victory and in defeat. The Psalms teach us how to exalt and also how to lament. They teach us how to shout his praise and to whisper for mercy. The Psalms are written in response to real life events and David's way to respond to the truth that he knew about God in the the midst of the emotion that he was feeling. And sometimes we can miss that when we just read through the Psalms. And you might be thinking like, I thought we were turning to 1 Chronicles 16. Why are you introing with a teaching on the Psalms? Well, interestingly enough, what I love about books like Chronicles, and I would actually, this is something great about reading a Bible uh, plan in a chronological order is that it inserts many of the Psalms into the historical event uh, in which they were penned after. First Chronicles does this for us. The chronicler here, uh, it records the event and then David's response in worship to what had happened. See, life happens and we respond, don't we? And when we know the Lord, our response is proportionate to the depth in which we know our Lord. The deeper that we know the Lord, the deeper we go and worship, do we not? The deeper that we know the Lord, the deeper we go and worship. And here are two, really kind of as we begin here, two mind-blowing and yet heartwarming thoughts. And they are this, the first is because God is infinite, we will never stop learning about him, which means that our worship will always be increasing for eternity. Doesn't that blow your mind? For the rest of our lives, we will continue to explore the heights and depths of who God is, and that will fuel our worship. That as great as our worship may be today, on this Lord's day, just imagine 100 years from now when most of us all in this room are with the Lord and how great our worship will be then and all throughout eternity. But here's the second point, and this is really the heart of 1 Chronicles 16. Because God has come near, We can know him and worship him. 
God is infinite, yes, but he has also come near so we can know and worship him. Now, enough intro things. Who wants to read First Chronicles 16? Let's read it together. I'll read it for us. Turn it, look there in your copy. We're gonna read the first 30-some verses here. First Chronicles 16. Follow along in your copy as I read it for us. And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemariamoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obadiah, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Verse 8, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens splendid and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the, Lord is the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation 
and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen. Amen, and praise the Lord. This is God's word for God's people. How can you not read a passage like that and just want to burst out in praise, right? Amen. I mean, this is, this is David's response to these events. And, and maybe as I was reading it, doesn't it seem maybe a little bit disproportionate? It's like the, the ark just came and you appointed some people and now you have this burst of praise before the Lord? There must be something significant about those first seven verses, isn't there? There must be something significant. And really what we've done is parachuted into this historical event. We've parachuted right in, and maybe you're unfamiliar with the history of what was happening in this day, but David had just become king over Israel. If you read the chapters, you can do it this afternoon, you will see that David has now just been appointed king. And before him, who was the king? Do we know king? King Saul, that's right. And before King Saul was appointed, Samuel was the ruler over Israel. He ruled as a judge and kind of a spiritual leader, a figurehead, but he was not the king. And in the days of Samuel, they had uh, enemies called the Philistines, which were really their enemies all throughout these kings. But in, the, in Samuel's day, the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant from the people of Israel and taken it back to their place and put it in their temple. And that did not bode well for them. You can go back and read it in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, and you can read the account. But they take it in, and they go back in the morning into their temple, and they're like stone idols. He's like face down on the ground. It's like there's a spiritual battle overnight, and God's like, yeah, he just like knocked him down. He's like, there is no one that can stand before me. No one that can stand before me. And all kinds of things happen, so much so that the Philistines are like, we gotta get this thing out of here. It's causing sickness and disease and chaos. All that. We, gotta, we gotta get this thing out of here. And so it's returned back to the people of Israel, but it's taken and left in a city called Kiriath-Jerim. And it's there basically for 20 plus years through the reign of King Saul. And then after King Saul dies, David has now just been appointed king. And one of his first acts is to take the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to the capital or to the center of Israel, to Jerusalem. And so why is this so important? What's, what's up with the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant? What's the big deal well, the ark represented God's presence among his people. The ark represented God's presence among his people. It wasn't magical. It wasn't an idol. The ark was itself not to be worshipped, but it was a symbol, a reminder, a reminder of the holiness of God, a reminder of God's presence among his people. It was a reminder to Israel that they were distinct among the nations, that they had been set apart and, to, and were chosen and so now that the ark is there among the people, there is reason to celebrate because God's presence is now here and back and among and central to the people of God, the people of God. See, the way that they would view the Ark of the Covenant is very similar. It's not necessarily synonymous, but similar to the way that we view the scriptures. Do we worship the scripture? No. Is the scripture like somehow a part of the Trinity? Is it What's the would be for quattro unity? No, it's not. It's not a part of that. But is the Bible important? Is God's inspired revelation? Does this teach us about who God is? You better believe it. 
better believe it. We need the scripture to know how we are saved. And so it's very similar. But now God has come near. God is present among his people. And in our passage here, just look there. In the first, really, three verses, David goes priest mode and offers burnt and peace offerings to the Lord. He blesses the people with a, with a prayer he off, and then offers food. This was a day to celebrate. He distributed to all bread, meat, and a cake of raisins. This is a feast. It's reason to celebrate. And this is really an extraordinary event because David was a king from the line of Judah and not a priest from the tribe of Levi. Most kings, and actually King Saul, when he tried to do this, he got in big trouble for it, lost the kingdom when he tried to take on the priestly role, but God allows David to do this because David is unique. David is unique, and from him, from him would come the Messiah, would come Christ. Many years down the line, and really in the next chapter, he would even make a covenant promising this to David. It's a unique chapter. Not only does David then he do the priestly duties, but in verse four, he then goes into king mode and he appoints those who would lead worship, who would invoke, thank, and praise the Lord. And we're given all these names that are, yes, hard to pronounce, and, uh, and he assigns those who would, uh, who would oversee the various aspects of worships. In a similar way that we have a, as a church, we have our ministry teams, and we have musicians, and vocalists, and we have ushers, and we have hospitality folks, and we have uh, audio people, and we have uh, facilities people that are appointed and come and serve the Lord in a with a worshipful heart with a worshipful focus because they know we are to come because God is near and to praise him and in light of all this and this thing happening in the ark coming back to the center of God's people we're given David's own response of worship see sometimes we can lose the significance that God coming near and dwelling among his people is of extraordinary significance. Because who is God? We've just sung about him. He is mighty, right? He is holy. He is apart from us, and yet he would come and make himself known to us. And that, beloved, is a reason to worship. And what we have in the next verses are really parts and pieces of Psalm 105, Psalm 96, and a few verses from Psalm 106. You can go and read those and, and elsewhere, but we have portions of them right here because see when we take in the truth that God has come near we burst out we burst out with these five responses of worship and here they are as you're taking notes here they are because he has come near we are to give thanks we're to give thanks look at this first command oh give thanks see gratitude is the attitude of a changed life Gratitude is the attitude of a, of a changed life. This is what is exuded from God's people who have been changed by the nearness of God coming through Christ by his Holy Spirit. This attitude is what flies in the face of our sinful desires, our sinful attitudes of bitterness and entitlement, of annoyance and anger and pride and worry and doubt, but the command that keeps those attitudes at bay is the command to give thanks. It's to give thanks. How many psalms begin this way? How many times do we see the command to give thanks all throughout our New Testament, and yet we can just kind of overlook it, right? That's for like a week in Thanksgiving, and if you're real spiritual, you might do it every day and give thanks every day in November. 
But in the life of a believer, we are to give thanks in all things, in all things. Here are just these words. You don't have to turn there, but the book of Colossians, a great theological treatise, and sprinkled all throughout Colossians, beginning with prayer. Here's just Colossians 1.3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. How many of us can really say that? As we begin our prayers for God's people, for our coworkers, for our family members, for the people sitting next to us, for the people in our small group, can we say that we always give thanks for them? More often our prayers are, God, would you change my spouse? Would you do a work in my kids? Because they're really driving me crazy. But to give thanks, God, thank you for putting my husband in my life. Thank you for these kids. Thank you for the opportunity to shine a light in my work situation. He'll go on and just show us what that looks like. How do we pray that? In verse 11 and 12 of chapter one, may you be strengthened with all power. These are the words of his prayer. According to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What a great way to pray as you pray for the people in your small group. God, thank you that you saved that person so that way I could know them and grow with them. Thank you, God, that you have uh, lavished your love upon them. But thanksgiving isn't just a part of our prayers. It's also a part of the way we walk. He will go on, Colossians 2, and says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Chapter 3, he'll basically say the same thing in a variety of ways. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that's just a little bit. You're like, Blair, you're bouncing around. Why are we in Colossians? Because I want you to see that a thankful life is a worshipful life. An authentic worshiper is someone who is defined by gratitude. Gratitude in every aspect of our life. Look, go back to 1 Chronicles 16. He tells us, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. See, as believers, our worship is also evangelistic. Our thankfulness is evangelistic. Our thankfulness is what, is, is what shines bright in our world. There's no better way to have a winsome witness in your school, in your work, in your neighborhood than being defined as someone who is grateful. This stands out in our skeptical, entitled, bitter world in which we live. See, not only is it evangelistic, it's also enthusiastic. Look at verse nine as he he commands us to sing to him these songs of testimony that we've sung even this morning. Look what God has done. And as we with gratitude in our hearts, with enthusiasm, how could our heart be cold to those things? But rather it's enthusiastic, it's cheerful, it lifts our spirits as we are thankful. It's also sanctifying. It's sanctifying. A thankful heart is a worshipful heart that is sanctifying us. We're told to seek the Lord. We're to seek his strength, to seek his presence continually. We're to be going after the Lord all throughout our life, seeking him in the scriptures, refreshing our mind and heart in the cross. 
See, these things, we're told to remember the wondrous works that he has done. See, we're not just to go back and read them like nice little uh, history stories, like old children's stories. The Old Testament, the, these stories that we have throughout the scriptures, the miracles that he's done, the ways in which he's worked are not just dusty old stories, but they are soul-invigorating, inspired works of a God. There are moments for us to behold, to lift our spirits in worship. See, God came near. God came near. He chose the Israelites. He chose them from among the nations. And so, God came near. And we are to be thankful. Outward, upward, and inward. God came near. Let us give thanks. And let us also remember. Remember his compassion. Remember his compassion. We're told to give thanks. And then we're told to remember his covenant. See, who does this describe him as? He is the Lord, our God, verse 14 says. This is his personal name, but it is also a reference to his holiness. His word has gone out over all the earth. See, he not only has a reign in your heart, but he has a global reign throughout the entire universe. And so we are commanded to remember his covenant. We are. We are not to forget what he has promised. We are not to forget his unmatched compassion that he first made with Abraham and then confirmed throughout the generations so that we would know this is true. An everlasting covenant that God would be faithful to give his people this, uh, a people that is beyond numbering, a land that is forever theirs and that they would be a blessing to the people, to the nations of the world. And we're to remember this when, when they were weak, See, the command, God has come near. When did he come near? Did he come and choose us to be on his team because we were great and strong? No, when they were, look at verse 19, few in number of little account, sojourners wandering around. They were once weak and wandering, easily destroyed, easily wiped out and forgotten like many nations. But God came near and protected them, letting no one lay a hand on them. Beloved, look here for a second. Don't, I, want you to, I want you to realize something. The fact that Israel is still a nation and still a people group thousands of years later is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Regardless of what you think about uh, what's to come in, in future days, if God has a future for them, but the fact that they still exist, even if you dismiss the supernatural element, just on a pure sociological or anthropological level that they are still a people group dwelling in the same land thousands and thousands of years later is testimony to God's provision, protection, and preservation of his people. But we know there's a supernatural element. That there is a reason which he has saved them and preserved them and kept them around to be remembered, that even we would see that and remember our own weakness, our own wandering, and the faithfulness of God to us, how we were once weak and wandering in our sin. We remember our past, and when it's ugly to think where we might be apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we would be wiped out and forgotten. But remember where we came from and what Christ did to rescue us, the great compassion that he showed us in our weakness, in our wandering. We remember Christ's faithfulness, not our own. We remember Christ's faithfulness in the same way that he was faithful to Israel. We remember his faithfulness to us. 
Remember his compassion. Remember God's compassion to condescend to us in humble form in Christ Jesus. And this is why we burst out in worship. See, when we remember his compassion, we remember his nearness, and what does this make us do? It causes us to sing to him, to sing to him. Look at this next command, sing to the Lord all the earth, right? Isn't there just something like uh, uh, emotional? Isn't there something just driving about these words? To sing to the Lord all the earth, to tell of his salvation from day to day? Isn't that what creation is doing? Isn't this something that we just want to be a part of? To sing out to God because of his great salvation every day and everywhere, not just on Sundays at Fryhead Elementary when it's a little hot and stuffy in here, right? We may not have a great voice. We may not know any catchy lyrics. We don't have to sing loud, but we just sing out to the Lord every day as God is near to us, as we are seeking him. We sing also, look at this in verse 25, we sing in fear of his holiness. In fear of his holiness. No, not cowering. We sing in fear or reverence and awe because of who he is. He is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods because all of our idols, all of our idols are what? Worthless. Only Christ is worthy to be praised. And all of our idols, the things that we raise up to worship and to, to, to dominate our life that steal our affections, they are all in the end worthless. Our sports teams, our kids even, our hobbies, they didn't make the heavens. They are not splendid nor majestic. And yet we often praise them like they did. Our lives revolve around us, around them, as if they can give us the strength and joy that we desire. See, idols will always disappoint us because they can't deliver the strength and joy that we want. That comes from only one source, beloved. One source, it comes from God. And see, here's the truth, the life-altering truth that I want you to know this morning. God never disappoints. Did you hear what I just said? God never disappoints. He doesn't. You might be saying, wait a minute, Pastor. I've been disappointed by God. Right now I'm disappointed by God. I'm feeling that way this morning. But I want you to know something, that if you're feeling disappointment, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but the problem is not with God, it's with us. That's right. See, our expectations get skewed. Our understanding of God is flawed or incomplete. Our emotions have been skewered. And so the problem is here with us and not with God. And so we change. We change our understanding. We align our expectations rightly about who God is and how he has come near and how he has revealed himself to us. Listen to this quote. From this, from, it's actually from the foreword by Matt Redman. This is one of our recommended readings this month, actually. True Worshippers. Highly recommended. Short read. You want to 
stir your affections for the Lord, this is a great book. And here's one thing that he says. Worship is one of the ultimate themes of this life. But it is never a question of whether worship will or won't occur in the heart of a human being. It's more a case of whether the worship will travel in the proper direction and end up in the right place. It's guaranteed that everyone on this planet will be an extravagant worshiper of some kind, sacrificially spending themselves in a life of desire and devotion. But, it by no means is, but it's by no means guaranteed that their worship will travel along the right paths. People will find a way to worship anything and everything, but all the time God is calling us back to himself, back to being the God reflectors and image bearers we were meant to be. He is the only one worthy of our worship. As C.S. Lewis reminded us, idols inevitably break the hearts of their worshipers, but not so when we worship Jesus. Of course, the complete opposite occurs, and we find ourselves in a place of fulfillment and satisfaction. See, beloved, when we encounter the Lord in spirit and in truth, we will always be satisfied. It's what we were created for. It is what is authentic worship. And so when we come to the Lord and we aren't feeling that way, it's because our understanding needs to change. Our affections need to change. Our expectations need to change. And that's not a bad thing because it is the grace of God to expose it in your heart and to draw you to himself. And he's saying, here, don't be satisfied in this, but let me give you something better in Christ Jesus. Let me give you something infinitely better in Christ Jesus. And you will never be disappointed. You will never be satisfied because he is worthy. He is worthy. And when we come to understand that, what else could we do but sing to the Lord? Singing is like a thermometer of the affections of our heart. It's a thermometer of right understanding, true joy of a rightly satisfied heart in the Lord. It's in singing, and that's why we're told to sing to the Lord. And it's the singing that leads us to, look at this next section, verse 28, to ascribe him glory. To ascribe him glory. See, this is the, the direction that we are headed in all of our worship. To ascribe is, is kind of a weird word, right? We don't necessarily use this in our everyday language. We get prescribed things when we go to the doctor. Somebody may describe a painting or something, but to ascribe means to give credit, to give credit to. And so when we ascribe to the Lord, it means that we are giving him credit for what he has done, for what rightfully belongs to him. And this is pure, authentic worship as we give God credit for the glory and strength that he alone possesses to the glory that is due to him, that we bring to him. See, through our prayers, through our songs, through our serving, through our giving, all of that is saying that we are coming and saying, all I have belongs to you, and I wouldn't have it if you hadn't given it to me. It's as if we are acknowledging, God, this is, this is, this is yours, and so I give my first and my best portions back to you. We come, that's why we worship on the first day of the week, 
Because we were saying, all of my life belongs to you, God. How I spend my time belongs to you. And so I give the first part, the best part of my week to you, God. This is what fuels our giving. We do, it's not just like the leftovers. We say, God, no, this belongs to you. So I give you the first and the best in my finances. It's in our singing and our applause. We, we give God the greatest applause, the greatest joy, the, our loudest singing, more than we sing loud to uh, you know, our favorite country song or something. Although I don't know how anyone can sing to that kind of stuff. <laughs> We give it to the Lord. See, we add nothing to God, but we ascribe him everything. We add nothing, but we ascribe everything, just as creation does. Look at the, isn't, isn't this a great description of the heavens, of the sea roaring, of the fields exalting, of the, of the trees singing? See, they have one point, they have one direction they are pointing. They have one song that they are singing. They're not taking credit for themselves. The trees are not out here saying, look how big and strong I am. The fields are not saying, look how beautiful I am. The seas are not roaring so that they get the credit. No, they are ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name the majesty of the one who created them the question is are we with our lives or are we taking the credit for ourselves creation has one song to sing is our song verse 34 as well give thanks to the Lord for he is good see what could we do if we understand the goodness of God to come near but ascribe him glory. And all of this, all of this worship crescendos with a blessing of the Savior. To bless the Savior, look at these last few verses. These come from Psalm 106. There's been a transition from Psalm 96 and Psalm 106 here, but God has come near as the Savior. Isn't this the greatest demonstration of the nearness or the condescension of God to leave heaven and come and make himself known to us? The greatest revelation of that, the greatest demonstration of God's coming near is in Christ Jesus. See, David pens these words, he blesses, he asks God to save us because he's looking for real physical rescue from the hostile nations around him from the Philistines in particular, but he's also looking for a spiritual rescue from the sin that is within him. He has a hope for a future savior. But we, beloved, stand on the other side of the cross, looking back with a similar hope of the savior who has come and our response should be one of thankful worship. See, this is the most life-altering truth that Christ came near. God became a man to live a life that we couldn't live, dying the death that we were supposed to die, and raising again in newness of life so that we too might be raised to newness of life. God came near to rescue us so that we would be thankful, that we would worship him that we might give thanks to his holy name and glory in his praise. Blessed be our Savior. And all the people said, Amen, Amen right? Amen. Beloved, as we wrap up here, I pray that we never lose our awe. I pray that we are a church with a single pursuit.
I pray that we are a church that never loses sight of who it is that we worship. That in the most significant of events, like God coming near to the most ordinary of events, that we would be a people who are ready at the drop of a hat to say, look what God has done that he is great, that he is exalted, that our hearts would burn white hot in passionate praise, not just here on a Sunday morning, but that we would be marked as authentic worshipers of the one true and living God who has made himself known to us. That's the type of church I want us to be. That's the type of worshiper that God is seeking, is seeking. Let's pray now. God in heaven, would you uh, come as we seek you, as we seek to know you this morning. God, this is the truth that has transformed us. This is the truth that you have come near in Jesus. And so what could we do but give thanks? What could we do but remember that with gladness of heart? What could we do but sing out to you, to ascribe to you, to give you the credit and to bless you for saving us. God, even now as we uh, begin to sing a song of response, it's almost as if it's being pent up in our hearts now, God. We've heard it read and we've, we've, we've seen this picture. You are near. Your people have been praising you for many generations. And so we want to add our voice to that even now. God, would we be satisfied even now as we come and sing out these truths and we say you are exalted over all. We love you and pray in Christ's name. Amen.